Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here with us. And as uh, Roddy said, it's great to have some extra parking on there. If you're not sure, you can park out there. We're given the green light by the uh, construction company. We'll have a little bit more of an update for you next weekend. Um, I don't know about you, but I've had lots of turkey in the last few days. I think my last night was my first meal without turkey since Thursday afternoon, but uh, that's good. I like turkey. It's good for you. Um, but as we are wrapping up the Thanksgiving season, we're starting to turn our thoughts and attention, as many of you are, to Christmas. And we are starting to prepare for Christmas at Cocalico. And <clears throat> I don't know if you recognize this. I was reading this uh, just a couple weeks ago that Christmas is the one holiday that the whole country and really the whole world recognizes. You know, everybody stops for Christmas. Everybody does something. Everybody gives a gift, often receives a gift, decorates, does something for Christmas. The world doesn't really stop for Easter. They recognize it, but the world stops for Christmas. And so we want to take that opportunity to um, invite um, our entire community and your entire network of relationships to um, our services here um, on Christmas. We're going to have uh, four services, December 23rd and 24th at 3 and 5 p.m. You say, why are we having four? Because we had two, we had three last year and they were two and a half. Two were packed. One was almost packed. So we're anticipating a lot of people here. And we'll have some invitations for you next week. And we want to encourage you uh, to start a new family tradition and bring your entire family to celebrate Christmas. You know, you, know, you might have that uh, curmudgeon old uncle who doesn't, you know, he just kind of sits in the corner. He'll come if you invite him to Christmas Eve. Or you might have, you might have that, you know, that niece or nephew or cousin or, or a friend or a relative that's kind of, they don't really have anything to do with God. He's not on the radar. They'll come if you invite them to Christmas Eve. If you have a spouse that doesn't want anything to do with God, you invite them, they'll come on Christmas Eve. So I want to encourage you to just start a new tradition with your family, Bring your entire family here. Some of you are inviters. You know who you are. I don't have to tell you. Are you invite people? And so I want to challenge you to take a stack of those invitations, stuff them in your coat pocket, in your purse, wherever you go. Invite people. Say, hey, if you're not doing anything on the Christmas Eve holidays, would you come celebrate Christmas at Cocalico with us? So we're excited about the opportunity that God has in front of us. Um, we now have a little bit more space, and uh, we'll be able to use that no matter what's going on, so we're excited about that, and uh, we'll have more details for this coming up next week. There's a couple of things we're going to do to manage the people. Uh, we'll have a website for you to go to, and you, we're going to ask everyone to sign up which service they're coming to. You say, why are you going to do that? Because we can only fit so many people in this room, and we want a seat for everybody. We have a parking spot for everybody, now we need a seat in here for everyone. And so you don't have to get a printed ticket or anything like that, it'll just, you go online, you click it, this is how many people we're bringing, and that will help us manage the people here. So just a couple things we're doing differently this year, but we're doing them because we feel like God has put right in front of us this massive opportunity to invite our entire community to celebrate Christmas at Cocalico. So uh, we're looking forward to that, excited about what God's going to do. Someone did ask me this question. We are providing childcare for kids zero to five years old. So no races up and down the aisles this year, you know, like we had last year. So, um, so there will be childcare for those of you that have young kids or you have grandkids. There will be a place for them. They'll have a great time and uh, they'll be a, the family will be able to celebrate Christmas together. So, um, uh, start thinking about that and praying about who God wants you to be a part of this time with us. Well, this summer, my friend J.R. Mann was here, and he had a chance to speak at Cocalico, and when he visited, we decided we needed to do something mildly adventurous, you know, for a couple of guys in their 50s, and so we looked at a couple of different options. We thought, well, how about we go ziplining, and before you go ziplining, um, you... Uh, you can see he's making a funny face. I got my tongue out. I'm not sure what's going on there, but uh, between the two of us. But before you go zipline, you have to go up on this high ropes course. 
And to get up on this high ropes course, you're about 50 feet in the air. And so you can imagine through this whole adventure, you know, JR's making fun of me and making wisecracks, and I'm calling him a wimp, and we're just going back and forth. But then we get to the end of the high ropes course, and we go on these zip lines. And so we watch the instructor. She said, now you do this, you hold on to this, and, and if you want to, when you're going down, you can flip like this, and you can turn upside down like this, and you can go backwards like this. And, so, and then this is how you get reoriented before you land on the platform. So I started on the first zip line, and I thought, well, this is kind of fun. You know, I thought, well, that's right. She said you could do this to turn upside down. And so I turned myself upside down, but I couldn't remember what I was supposed to do to turn myself back around. <laughs> I'm like, oh, crap, what am I going to do? I'm stuck. I got to turn around, and I, this is, I'm going faster and faster, and I can't slow down. And how was I going to get turned around? And I could not remember what she said. Gravity's taking four, and you know, gravity's, you know, entering into the equation here. And I know I'm coming into a platform, and there's a 120-pound guide on that platform that's somehow supposed to stop me. And I am completely out of control, completely and utterly out of control. And we all know what that feeling of being out of control is like, whether it's physically on a zip line whether it's emotionally and you can't control your emotions, whether it's um, financially and money's just pouring out, whether it's professionally. But let me ask you this question. How many of you work really, really hard to try to keep life under control? Let me see your hands. Okay, now those of you that don't have your hands up and someone sitting next to you does that, just jab them right in the ribs, you know? They're not being honest in church. So many of us do that, right? So many of us, when life gets out of control, when we are hurtling down so fast that we can't figure out how to stop, how to turn ourselves around, we do everything we can to try to control our lives. We schedule, we manipulate, we negotiate, and if we can't control our lives, what do we try to do? We try to control somebody else's life, don't we? We try to control our spouse's life, our kids, our grandkids, our employers, anybody that we can find, we try to control their lives, and that usually makes it better, doesn't it? No, it makes it worse. It makes it worse. You know, the other options when life is going out of control is to freak out on the person who's nearest to you, who knows you, you know, who can handle all that. And they're like, why am I privileged to get all of this once again, you know? Um, but navigating life when it's out of control. And this morning, we're going to wrap up our series, Thriving in, ba in Babylon. And we're going to look at a story uh, about an individual where life was going along and suddenly, without any warning, it was completely out of control. One of his most frightening experiences that the guy Daniel, we've been tracking his life, faces, and how God shows up. And my hope for you is that you get a glimpse of how God longs to show up in your life when you are hurtling through life and it is completely out of control. We've been in this series entitled Thriving in Babylon, and it's the story of this guy Daniel. And um, a guy that was taken from his homeland, moved a thousand miles away, um, stripped of everything that he knew, his identity, his name, his culture, his heritage, his family, and they attempted to strip him of his faith. But somehow he held on to that. Somehow he held on to that. And in the midst of this, God showed up and God revealed himself to him and God rescued him. And we're going to see that again this week. And God reminded him that God's completely in control and God humbled the proud and he destroyed the unbridled arrogance. And you might be wondering if you're looking in the book of Daniel, you say, John, you said we're going to finish this, but we're only halfway through, and you're right, we are. We are. There's the second half of the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12. The first half is designed to give us hope and confidence in a God coming through when life is at its worst. And the second half is a series of visions and dreams that Daniel has 
about the end of time and what life is going to be like during that. And he wanted to set us up. He wanted to remind us about God's goodness and his faithfulness and the fact that he's going to come through when life all around us, even the world that we know, and sometimes we wonder that, right? With terrorism, with the world economy, with everything that's going on, we wonder, God, how in the world are we going to survive? When is it going to come close to us like it did in Sutherland Springs, Texas? You know? And so the only way we can make our way through that is to have hope and confidence in a God that is with us and walking through life with us. And so no matter where you're at on your faith journey, my suspicion is that you face life being out of control. You've experienced hurtling through time and hurtling through your life when nothing you can do can bring it under control. Whether it's a family trauma, a health crisis, financial uncertainty, instability in the workplace, We've all faced that. And so the question is, what do you do and where do you turn? And my hope is that Daniel's experience will offer some direction for all of us today. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one, the seat in front of you and turn there. Or you can follow along on your phone or tablet. Uh, Daniel chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Then what's happening in Daniel chapter 6 is Daniel had been serving at the pleasure of the king of Babylon. And, um, excuse me, various kings of Babylon. But Babylon had been defeated as a power, as a nation. We saw this a few weeks ago. They were the most powerful nation on the earth at that time. One of the most powerful nations ever in terms of the amount of land mass that they controlled. And they were defeated. A new regime is in town. A new boss is in town. A new politician in the office. So everything's going to get better, right? Eh, not so quickly. Change in your situation does not result in relief you crave. Change in your situation does not always result in the relief that you crave. You know, this job's going to be better and life's going to be much better, but ah, it's just as hard as the other one, you know. This friendship, it's going to be better than that last one. They took advantage of me and they let me down and they didn't come through. Oh, man, that happened again. I'll have another kid. Maybe that one will work out better. Well, how'd that work out for you, you know? <laughs> You know, changing your situation does not result in the relief that you crave. And so what is Daniel going to do? What is he going to do? Well, Daniel 4 and 5 were closely connected, and so are Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. They're what we often call rescue stories. You see, in Daniel 3, the faithful refused, as Tim talked about a few weeks ago, to participate in worshiping this massive idol, the King Nebuchadnezzar. The faithful said, we're not going to do it. God came through and this week, what happens in Daniel 6 is um, the faithful refuse to stop properly worship from properly worshiping their God. And so the story begins in verse 1 with a new king in town. New king in town. His name is King Darius. And it says there in Daniel chapter 6, it, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. And the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. What was happening is the king was setting up this centralized, this decentralized, excuse me, this decentralized government. And so there was 120 of these satraps. We might think of them as, as kind of like governors over the entire land. And they each reported to someone that would function like a VP. There were three of them, and Daniel was appointed as one of these individuals. And the structure was designed so the king could affectionately and effectively lead 
and not lose money because of the kingdom was so spread out and so diverse. And so in verse 3, the situation changed a little bit. Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. Basically, what happened in Daniel's life is he was going to get moved into the COO, the chief chief operating officer of the company. He was going to be over all the VPs, over all the satraps, and this did not set well with some of his uh, teammates on the in the kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and the conduct of his government affairs, but they were unable to do so. Wow, imagine that. Worked in the government and couldn't find any dirt on him. That's a surprise, isn't it? No skeletons in the closet, you know, nothing that he posted on social media, nothing he did 30 or 40 years ago. They couldn't find anything on this guy. Nothing. Nothing. Say, why was that? goes on to explain, they could find no corruption because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. He was trustworthy. That means he kept his word. Um, He wasn't corrupt. There was nothing illegal, nothing under the table, nothing behind someone's back, and he wasn't negligent. When he said he was going to do something, he followed through. He did it thoroughly. He did it well, and this is what was true of Daniel. And as they looked at this guy and said, somehow we have to entrap him. We can't find a way to entrap him. Everything we tried, everything we would normally try, nothing's working. Nothing's working. We have to come up with a better solution. I think it was last Saturday, I heard this squeal down in our our kitchen area, and I was up in my bedroom, and I heard this squeal followed by a mouse. That's what I heard. And uh, so there was a mouse that, of course, ran across our floor in our kitchen. And we've had mice from time to time. So um, I told my son, go set a trap. And, uh, you know, so we set a trap, put a little peanut butter on it. You know, that usually does a trick. Next day, the trap is licked clean. (laughs) Four days in a row, the trap is licked clean. Find mouse droppings, another putt, put another trap with the, the trap is licked clean. We could not find a way, have not been able to find a way to entrap this mouse. And that's the condition that these individuals were in. They were trying to find a way to entrap Daniel. They said, normally we can find this on them. Ah, nothing there. Normally we can find this. Let's go do Nothing there. Normally we can find this. Let's go find that old girlfriend. We can find something on him. No, nothing. Nothing. They could find nothing to entrap this guy. And so what did they do? They realized there was only one way. They said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with his God. That's the only way. The only way we're going to trap this guy if there's something between him and God. We make him choose between his God and someone else. We know what he's going to do. He's never going to bail on God. Never going to bail. Never going to bail. And so how are we going to entrap him? So what did they do? So they went to the, as a group to the king and said, May the king Darius live forever. The royal administrators, perfect satraps, advising government officials have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, gets thrown into the lion's den. So they came up with a plan. They said, we've all agreed. Now, had they all agreed? No, because Daniel was one of them, and he didn't agree to this. So they made something up. They lied initially to convince the king. And they tried to appeal to the king's vanity and say, King, no one is going to be able to pray to you. You are the only one that can be the intercessor for all of the people. 
for these 30 days, for these 30 days. And they wanted to be, um, they want there to, wanted there to be no loopholes, no loopholes. So they went on to say this, now issue a decree, put it in writing in accordance with the laws and the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Um, Daniel had risen to a position of significance and influence. I mean, he was about to be promoted to the second in command over the entire kingdom of Babylon in a place that did not believe in his God. And I think as we try to figure out what our role and how do we function in a culture and a world that increasingly moves away from a recognition and an allegiance to the God that we know and love and serve, what do we do? What do we do? And for a while, people of faith thought, well, we just need to get people who are of faith in office. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they got as many skeletons as people who aren't of faith. But I think what happened in Daniel's life is he just became the best he could at what he was doing. And that gave him influence, it gave him authority, and it also put him as a target in the eyes of those who didn't agree with his God. And sometimes when you choose to do your best, when you choose to function the best you can in a culture and environment that opposes God, and you get recognition and you get applause for that, you put a target on your back because of that. You say, but John, that's, why, why is that? I mean, if I do what God wants me to do, if I follow God, if I live for God, if I try to honor God, shouldn't life go well? Shouldn't life go well? Well, that's not really what Jesus said. Look what he said in John 15, verse 19. He said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. He's talking about the world system, people apart from God. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. God's saying, Jesus is saying, I've selected you out of that to be one of mine to follow me. And he said, that is why the world does what? Loves you? No. What does it say? Hate, say it. Hates you. That's why the world system that opposes God hates you. I mean, we're seeing this illustrated in the life of this guy, Daniel. And so if you choose to honor God with your life, if you choose to follow him with your life in a culture, in a setting, in an environment, in a family system, whatever it is that opposes God, you will be blessed by God, but you will have a target on your back by those who oppose and hate God. And so what is Daniel going to do? What is he going to do? Is he going to rant about how unjust the king's ruling is? Is he going to gather up a coalition and go into the king's court to protest? Is he going to contact Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and strategize? How can we live on our faith and not get caught, guys? We know what the rule is, but we got to live it. We don't want to get... What did Daniel do? None of the above. None of the above. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And... Uh, Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, why did Daniel do this? Why did he do this? Did he do it just to thumb his nose at the officials? Did he do it saying to these guys, who do you guys think you are? Come on. My God just, he rescued my buddies out of a fiery furnace. You think lion, come on, what in the world? You know, 
I'm just going to do what I'm going to do and you go feed. Is that what he did? Is that what motivated Daniel to go to that window and bow down and pray? No, Daniel just did what he always did. He just did what he always did. Three times a day, he got down and prayed, gave thanks. And he goes on to say, he said, God, what do I do? God, what do I do? You see, when life spins out of control and we can't figure out what to do, it's the things that you do when life is in control that will sustain you when things are out of control. It's the elements of your faith that you put into practice when life is in control that are going to sustain you when life feels out of control. Daniel didn't just start this up, oh my goodness, I can't believe this has happened. Okay, I got to start reading my Bible, I got to start praying, I got I to give some more money to the church, I got to start doing more, maybe God will get me out of this. That's not true of Daniel. When life was in control, he started doing things to honor God that sustained him when life got out of control. And so maybe you're sitting here saying, you know, well, John, life kind of feels in control right now. It's, it's okay. And I would say to you, then what are the practices of your faith that you're doing right now that will sustain you when life gets out of control? Because the painful reality is it will. It does for all of us. At some point in our journey, it does. Why did Daniel do these things? Well, in 1 Kings 8.35, the prophet said this, when the heavens are shut up and because of rain, this is Elijah speaking, when they pray and give praise to your name, then hear from heaven, forgive the sins of your people. He's telling them what to do. And then he says, teach them the right way to live. He said, this is what I want you to be doing. Not just when you're stuck, not just when you're in a pinch, but this is what I want you to be doing. This is what I want you to be doing. The temple was in ruins, but Daniel prayed in that direction, believing that somehow, some way, God would restore that. We just sang this song earlier, Do It Again. Do it again. I love that song. It just reminds us that there's going to be dark days, there's going to be hard times, and some of you are right in the middle of them right now. And you're just wondering, God, are you going to do it again? Can you come through again? Because right now, I'm not really feeling like you're coming through for me. And, and I need some hope because I don't have any hope. And my hope is diminishing. Um, was this required of Daniel to pray three times a day? No, it wasn't. David said this. Um, he said, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and God hears my voice. He said, John, what am I required to do? There's no requirements to do. A relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus requires you to do the things that cultivate a relationship. Spend time with Him. Talk with Him. That's what you do in any relationship, right? For it to grow. And so you spend time with God through opening the Bible and looking at what it has to say. And if you're not sure where to go or what to do, or where to start, just talk to our pastors or small group leaders. We'll give you some direction. You have to have a conversation, right, for a relationship to be fostered. And so you have to talk to God. You have to do it regularly intentionally and purposefully. Say, John, what did Daniel pray about? Well, you can maybe make a note and read Daniel chapter 9. A few chapters later, you'll see what some of the things that Daniel prayed about. But it goes on to say, um, then these men went as a group, and what did they do? They found Daniel praying and doing what? Saying, God, help. I need help. I need help. Daniel wasn't oblivious to his situation. Daniel wasn't sitting there and, hey, life is grand. You know, God's going to bail me out. I don't know how. But no, he's saying, God, help. Help. I don't know where else to turn, God. I'm turning to you. Help. 
You know, the truth is for us, the greatest temptation when pressure comes on us is to give up those things that we've been doing in our relationship with God. I don't have time. I don't have money. I can't squeeze it in. I can't fit it in. I don't know why I'm doing this. What's the point of all of it? And so we scrap it all. We scrap it all. And then we find ourselves in those pressurized situations struggling to not give in. To not give in. You know, each one of us has a choice to make every day. What do those choices say about what we love and what we value the most? What do those choices say about what we love and what we value the most? What do they find in? Oh, they found in praying and asking God for help because they knew he valued his God. So they went to the king and said, didn't you publish a decree that in the next 30 days anyone who prays would be thrown in the lines? And the king says, oh, of course, that's the law. That's the law. And they said, uh, by the way, we have a little information for you. And um, notice how they refer to Daniel, not one of your administrators, not your future CEO or, or vice president over the whole company. He said, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah? He doesn't pay any attention to you, completely disregards what you have to say, your majesty, or to the degree that you put in writing. By the way, he's still praying three times a day. And look at the king's response. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. Not a Daniel. He was determined to rescue him, and he made every effort to save Daniel. You know, as I read this story, I think somehow Daniel impacted this king. I'm not quite sure how. I'm not quite sure in what way. But if, if, if this is a king that's, that's arrogant, that is self-absorbed, that's all about himself, which it appears just a few verses earlier he was because he said, yeah, let's have everybody pray to me. Sounds like a great idea. But when he realized what the effect of his decree was going to be, he's devastated. He's devastated. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that, of how living out our faith impacts the people around us. And you might have a boss, you might have a supervisor, you might have a family member, you might have a mother or father that doesn't give a rip about your faith until something happens to you and you realize, well, they really care about me. They really care about me. And the king appears almost reluctant to follow through. The men went as a group and they said, remember the king, remember king, this is what the edict was. And so the king gave the order, they brought Daniel, and the king says this to the Daniel, may your God whom you serve rescue you. I don't believe in your God, but I hope somehow he bails you out. I hope somehow he helps you. I hope somehow he comes through to you. Stone was brought, placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring so that the situation might not be changed. Sounds a little bit like something we talk about at Easter, doesn't it? Um, and so what happened to the king? He went home, couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, couldn't watch the next episode of his Netflix series that he was, you know, nothing. I mean, this guy was wiped out. You can almost picture him, can't you? Just up all night pacing. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that. What was I thinking? You know, who would make such a decree? Why, why didn't I ask somebody? Why didn't I even ask Daniel? He wasn't even in the crowd. I completely missed that he wasn't there. You know, 
How arrogant and egotistic, just to want people to worship me, just pacing the whole night long, back and forth, back and forth. Oh, I hope his God saves him. That guy's better than all those other people. They're a mess, you know. I don't know why I would listen to anything they have to say, you know. Just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, the entire night long. And so, at first light, the king got up and he ran to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God been able to rescue you? Has your God been able to rescue you? Again, I'm just kind of, I'm I'm really blown away by how concerned this king is about Daniel. I'm just pretty blown away by that. Because again, if the king was all about himself, he's like, oh, well, lost another one. Who's next? Put the next guy up. Move him up. You know, who's going to fill the spot? Somehow Daniel impacted this guy. And I'm not quite sure how he did it. But the way that he led, the level of integrity, the way that he did what the kings asked him to do, the way he served him, drew the king to him. And so he says, are you there? Did you survive? Are you still? And the king, Daniel answered, may the king live forever. And the king, I'm sure, breathed an immense sigh of relief. And Daniel then goes on to tell us what happened. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me. You didn't eat and I, the lions didn't eat because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty." As I sat with these words and thought about these words a little bit, I thought Daniel had to entrust himself completely to God to right the wrongs, to right the wrongs. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be falsely accused. I don't like to be blamed for things I didn't do wrong. I don't like to be told, well, this is what you did. Well, that's really not what I did. Let me tell you what I did. Do you want to hear it? No, I really don't want to hear what you did. Um. The Bible talks about God being a just God and that he rights the wrongs when they occur in our lives. And some of you have had some pretty massive wrongs occur in your life, maybe with a company, maybe with a mother or father, spouse, with parents. And um, Daniel said, you know, I'm just going to entrust God. I'm going to entrust God. I'm going to trust that God's going to right the wrongs that have taken place in my life. And that's what he said. He says, God righted the wrong. He said, I was found innocent. And that's why I'm still alive. Never did anything wrong, king. Never did anything wrong. Um, The king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out. Not even a scratch because he had done what? Because he had trusted in his God. Their trap had failed Their trap had failed. By the way, I did come up with a trap that worked. I caught him last night. (laughs) Glue trap worked great. He's gone. (laughs) Um, But their trap failed. It failed. And the consequences were drastic. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in, thrown in the lion's den, along with their wives and children. Before they even reached the den, the lions overpowered them. In case you thought the lions weren't hungry, they were very hungry. And they crushed them. They say, why even the children? Because in that culture in that day, what would happen is children whose fathers were, had this happen to them, they would grow up and guess who took out revenge against the king? It was the kids. It was the kids. Engineered by their mothers. And so he got rid of them all. He got rid of them all. And so how does Darius respond? 
Darius wrote to everyone, he said, the peoples of every language, may you prosper greatly. And then look what he says, I issue a decree that everyone has to fear and reverence the God of Daniel. And look how he describes the God of Daniel. He's a living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. He rescues and he saves and he's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. That's an incredible declaration by a pagan king in the land that Daniel was living. Powerful statements. He rescues, he saves, and he did it again. He did it again. When I was out of control on that high ropes course and wondered what was going to be happening as my nearly 200-pound body was hurtling to this platform on a tree stand with a female guy who was 120 pounds and was supposed to stop me. I had no idea how it was going to happen. But somehow, in literally three seconds, she flipped me around, got me on my feet, standing next to her on that platform. I have no idea this moment how in the world she did that. I literally don't know. And how I didn't go hurtling off into the woods somewhere, you know, playing Tarzan without a rope. Um, <laughs> I, I, honestly, to this day, I don't know how it happened. I literally, maybe Mark, who plays up here, he's one of those guys. Maybe he can explain it to me. But, um, and that's somehow how, sometimes what God does. We don't, how in the world did God shut the lions up? I have no idea how God did that. How did God patch up that relationship that was just, it was fractured, it was estranged. It was, I have no idea how God did that. I was strung out, I was addicted, I couldn't get, and somehow God freed me from that. I have no idea how he did it, but he did it. God provided me with this job. It's better than anything I could have even imagined. It's my dream job. How did that come? I have no idea how God did it. No idea. And the truth is, the God of the heavens, the God that I worship, the God that Daniel worshiped, is a God that rescues and saves, and sometimes we have no idea how he does it. No idea. And you and I can spend lots of hours and lots of time strategizing and planning and coming up with our own solutions to solve and fix this problem. Or maybe we just need to stop and get down on our knees and say, God, I have no idea how to fix this. I have no idea what to do, but I know you can rescue and you can save, and I'm going to fall out and plead with you. Because I have nowhere else to turn. Nowhere else to turn. Will no harm come to you like it did with Daniel? I can't make that promise to you. I can't. You might take some hits in the process. But I can tell you God will be with you. I can tell you he will never abandon you. And I can tell you that he is a God that rescues and that saves us. And as we wrap up this Thanksgiving season... I just want to close with a couple of thoughts. The first thought is, as you think about this year, is there some way that God has rescued you? Some way God has come through for you um, and rescued you, maybe from a bad financial decision, maybe from a career that was, you just didn't know how you were going to survive, maybe from a relationship that was harmful, maybe from an addiction or a habit that was just creating devastating um, outcomes in your life. Maybe God just rescued you from living life on your own instead of for Him. And he saved you. And I hope this, in these next few moments, you can just tell God that. 
You need to say, God, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for saving me. Um, maybe God hasn't rescued you yet. And you're sitting there thinking, John, I'm kind of waiting for my turn. And I hope this morning you walk away with an increased confidence that God does this. That God rescues and that he saves. And he did it in his life. And he wants to do it in your life today. And so in just a moment, we're going to take, we're going to go to prayer. And I'm going to invite you to talk to God about two things. Number one, how has God rescued you in 2017? How has he rescued you? How has he rescued you? Maybe he's helped you see some things about your life that you've never seen before. And you're like, wow, God's given me a second chance. He's given me a second chance. Or can you pray in faith believing that God will rescue you? Can you pray in faith believing that that relationship can be restored? That that wrong can somehow be righted? That hope will not be snuffed out? And that God will rescue and save once again? Would you bow your heads with me? And as we do, I just want to give you a moment to talk to God about those things. God, I know that when I find myself in situations with some similarities to Daniel, not with the lions, but falsely accused, unjust accusations, um, wrongs that just don't seem right, my bend is to fix and solve, and not just to say, God, I need you. I need you. And Lord, I hope this morning that we've been able to see ways that you've rescued us, but God, that doesn't mean our need for you ends. It just reminds us how critical it is that, God, we still need you. Every day, multiple times throughout the day. And so, God, I'm begging and pleading with you that you would rescue and save in the situations in many of our lives that, um, whether it's a relationship to be restored or someone we love who's walked away from you, and God, we're just, please, God, save them. Please, God, bring them back. Lord, help Daniel's story to remind us never to give up hope, but to keep leaning hard on you can't do this on our own. We need you, Jesus. In your name.